Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest for self-expression and collective renewal. In this group, we untangle the knots of our contemporary creative lives, connect to the greater web, and weave new stories. Part healing space, part writing and creative community, part innovation incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. In The Heroine's Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Not community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Season 2, Episode 8, Life and Death on the Farm Atop the Hill, a story of an Irish kalyak and her sacred cow. Our guest for this episode is Lee Rankin. Lee is a farmer and founder of Apple Hill Farm, a successful, award-winning, first-generation farm in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. She is an advocate for farmers through her leadership and involvement at both the state and local level. She speaks, teaches, and consults frequently as a first-generation woman farmer on the topic of alpacas, entrepreneurship, and the benefits of diversifying your farm portfolio through agritourism. Lee is also the author of Cooking Up a Storm, The Life and Recipes of Annie Johnson, now in its second edition. She is currently looking for a home for her new memoir, Farm Family. It's the story of her journey of starting Apple Hill Farm as a solo mom. I am so happy to have Lee Rankin here with me today. She is a wonderful friend and colleague and companion along the journey. And Lee is going to sit with me as I tell you one of my stories. And as our conversation schools out afterward, I think you'll understand exactly why I realized she was the woman I needed to sit down with and discuss this. Because in many ways, Lee was my muse for this story in addition to the original Irish text that I found that contained this bit of a tale in a footnote. But as is our way on Not Work Storytelling, we begin with the story, ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll talk about why it still matters. Fado, Fado, and Aaron. There was an old woman named Mona who lived at the top of a hill with a single cow for company. The cow was known to be a special one, and was coveted by just about everyone, including the local lord. Despite threats and insults, deals and attempted swindles, Mona would not give up her beloved and most sacred companion. When the story is reduced to a footnote, because really, that's nearly all we have to go on, we hear that the greedy lord and his men killed the old woman. Fools as well as murderous monsters, they killed the coveted cow, too. And then that footnote goes on to say that a so-called saint came round to the scene of the crime. He didn't condemn the murderers or say a blessing over Mona's bones or thank the cow for her lifetime of sacred nourishing service. No, this saint declared the house should be pulled down and he forbade anyone to utter the woman's name again. They even changed the name of the hill upon which the old woman lived. What was once Kanak Mona Anli became Kanak Man Alay. But could that really be the whole story? Could Mona, the stubborn and sovereign Mona, who knew she had a right to property and her own share of power, really be remembered just to be forgotten? Could a woman like Mona, a wise woman, a Kalyak, 
have lived so long only to be cut down by some jealous, petty thieves? There's something special in the way the old stories speak of the old woman. As I said, she's called the Kalyak. That word comes from the manuscript that preserved the old oral tale. It is not the choice of this modern storyteller. Because yes, Kalyak is the Irish term for old woman, but it conjures so much more than that. Kalyak is also the name of the hag goddess who just might have created the world with stones thrown from her apron. It's her bones that are the limestone of the island. It's her head that shapes the cliffs. It's her strong, humped back that makes the mountains. When greedy men kill an elderly lady because they want more than their own share of the butter, they're actually slaying a goddess and stealing something more precious than could ever be bought and sold at the county fair. Let's imagine beyond what the gentlemen of the Ossianic Society wrote in their thick volume of mythology and folklore in 1860. That's the source of this tale. It's a footnote in a long manuscript called Imic Natrumgava. Let's imagine a woman, a cow, a hill, and what might lay beyond and beneath it. Mona was a canny woman. She had known this irksome young lord's great-grandfather. She had refused to dance with him at a harvest festival when both stood at the portal between their youth and adulthood. That patriarch was no less foolish and no less monstrous than his descendant. When Mona declined the Lord's invitation and thus avoided his oniony breath and his wandering hands, he kicked her in the ankle and hissed that he wished her too lame to dance with anyone that night or any night after. The folk of the village knew full well who Mona was, and they knew full well the power of her mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother too. When they caught wind of the then-young Lord's curse, they weren't surprised to hear he woke up lame the next morning and could never walk a straight line again for the rest of his days. The bad blood between Mona and the local royals was old, but it had sunk deep. She rarely offered the Lord and his minions a second thought and did what she could to be a good neighbor. She paid her taxes with what butter she could sell. She lived on her own cow's bounty and what she could grow in her own cottage garden. She'd offer a healing herb, a cup of tea, and a non-judgmental ear to any who would come to call. It wasn't just the young women, but also the young men of the surrounding villages who would come seeking her counsel and her quiet, gentle grace. Mona was a kind, proud woman on the hill, alone in her house that was also a barn, as was the custom in those days. Some say the cow sipped tea with Mona and her guests. Perhaps it was true. She would never let that cow out of her sight, as she had seen too many men's eyes on her long white flanks, ready udders, and sweet red ears. As good and kind as she was, Mona was not protected from the greedy young lord's violence when she refused to give in to his demands for her precious cow. The incursions began just before Bridget's day. The festival of the land's greatest goddess and saint was a time to give thanks for the alchemy of summer grass that was transformed into a long, sweet season of milk. It was time to celebrate the butter that lasted through the long, dark time of the year. The mob climbed Mona's hill and stood outside the cottage door. Mona, we are here for your cow. The Lord demands tribute and only your magnificent beast will satisfy him. When she did not answer their calls, the Lord's men began with sticks and stones, throwing them against the thatch all night. But Mona spoke the language of the earth and could hold her house strong against the heaviest boulder. The mob returned as winter gave way to springtime. Mona, we are here for your cow. The Lord demands tribute and only your magnificent beast will satisfy him. When she did not answer their calls, the Lord's men poured poison down her well. But Mona spoke the language of water, and three drops of her own cow's milk diluted the poison to nothing. They came as the festival of May, Bialtana, was celebrated across the land. Mona, we are here for your cow. 
The Lord demands tribute, and only your magnificent beast will satisfy him. When she did not answer their calls, the Lord's men called in a priest to pray up a mighty storm that could blow Mona from her hill. But Mona spoke the language of the air and dispelled the gale before it began. Plus, the local cleric was terrible at weather magic anyway. They came on the summer solstice with blazing torches raised high. Mona, we are here for your cow. The Lord demands tribute and only your magnificent beast will satisfy him. They set fire to the door, the single window frame and the roof. But Mona spoke the language of fire and the flames hissed and died like starved things not meant for this world. They did not return at all through the summer. Perhaps they'd lost interest. Perhaps they were biding their time. Perhaps they were out cattle raiding, lifting entire herds rather than picking on a solitary woman for the want of a solitary cow. At last, as the autumn chill truly gripped the southern part of the island, the Lord's men came with swords and spears. They did not bother to ask. Mona did not speak the language of brute force, cruelty, and greed, so she was helpless against them. They all poured into the cottage at once and killed Mona. In their blind and foolish rage, they killed that sacred cow, too. Or did they? This story doesn't want to be retold to take a longer way to the same ending. The energy of the Kalyak is always wild and wise. Anyone who held the title had more than her share of wit and savvy. Even when they lived apart, each to her own hilltop, each tending her own animals and her own community's need for counsel and healing, I like to imagine that the Kalyaka had a sort of underground network and could communicate through the stones of the ground or the swirl of the elements, particularly when one of their sisters was in mortal peril. Long before Mona's time, there lived another Kalyak by the name of Shinak Crow. She lived in a distant time when men were just as violent and foolish and full of greed, but still knew the old gods and the old ways. You could count on some to pray with their feet, planted into Mother Earth, and to be in relationship with the Mother Goddess. You could count on them to honor Ankalyak. Shinak Crow had her own sacred cow, just like Mona did, and the animal was stolen by the local king, Gura of Connacht. Sheenach Crow appealed to the king of all of Ireland, King Dermot, because she knew he was a king who honored the old ways, the goddess and the power of an older woman. Dermot would not see the Kalyak robbed and shamed. He would not let a thief fill his house's butter churn with milk that was stolen, the cream's sacredness all leached out with the crime. Out of respect and reverence for her, Jermid raised an army and waged and won a great battle against Shinnach Crow's persecutor. Mona knew the power of her ancestor, Shinnach Crow, and she knew her secret. Shinnach Crow means red fox, and that ancient Kalyak could transform herself into that clever animal in her moment of greatest need. So, in the face of this harassment and invasion, Mona found herself reliving the story of Sheenak Crow. But Mona didn't have a friendly pagan king to call upon. In fact, there was a priest out there with the Lord's men, and he seemed to be cheering the invaders on. Mona did, however, still have her voice, her faith, and her bond to her mighty foremothers. Just as the Lord's men were about to bring their blades down upon Mona and her cow, she screamed out her ancestor's name. And with that, she was transformed and she was free. If those violent men had looked away from the brutal swinging blades, they would have seen a coppery fox running down the hill with a white hair with reddish ears loping beside her. The fox and hare ran and ran, but they didn't get further away, only deeper in. In Ireland, the old gods, who became the fairy folk, live inside the hills, you see. Mona became a shapeshifter. Mona always was. She was called back to be with Sheenik Crow and all the other wise, wise Kalyaka of her line. 
She lived in joyful community with them, fat and happy on her sacred cow's best butter, and so glad to see her own fine animal part of a contented, sacred herd. And if the name of her hill was changed in the human world, she never felt an ounce of sorrow. To be forgotten by thieves, murderers, enablers, and the mob is, perhaps, certainly, no great loss after all. But here we are, remembering her again, reclaiming her story after all. <sighs> Lee, thank you for sitting with me and my story. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Lee's coming to this one with a little bit of a surprise. She didn't actually see the, uh, the final version before we're diving in. So it's as new to her as it is to the listeners. But Lee, I called you here because you are a woman on a hill. You are a woman on a farm with not just one cow, but many animals in your herd, as well as a thriving community. And I myself not being a woman of a farm, not being someone who's grown up this way, have learned so much from you, both by being up at Apple Hill Farm and just in sitting in conversation with you over the years. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here to share this story with me. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. What a beautiful story and so many connections to my journey on a farm, I think. <laughs> Yes. So many connections. So many connections. So, yes. So what strikes you first? What's the chord that really resonates for you? The power of a woman with animals and land mm -hmm. is the thing that I think is the strongest chord. And living in the area that I live in where the majority of the farmers are men, mm -hmm. I find that it is such a feminine expression in life. And the way that I farm is so different than the way that they farm mm -hmm. and everybody's got the right to farm however they want, but mine is a much more spiritual, sacred, knowing connection and finding that knowing, mm -hmm. you know, I came to farming without any real experience with farming. I was literally called to do it and called to come to the mountains to do it. So my brother had a farm. I had spent Saturday mornings occasionally with him, get horses, helping him muck stalls and he, and the guys that worked with him drinking really bad coffee with coffee mate and barbecue potato chips <laughs> was the, was the break that we would have. And at Christmas, this was when I didn't have children and my brother did. I would help muck stalls on Christmas morning because nothing happens on Christmas until the farm's clean. So you feed the animals and you clean the farm and then Christmas can actually happen. Actually, I think they did stockings beforehand and then they did a brunch afterwards and presents. So coming to farming with this very different point of view and literally being called to the top of a mountain, the top of a hill to raise alpacas was my initial call. That was the initial mentor that called me was alpacas mm. and starting there. And then the story that spun into adding llamas and donkeys and goats, and then a story that then brought people to the farm. So then adding people to the farm, which is where the community and sharing that life and land with other people for them to experience the sacredness without even talking about it. We don't always talk about that in our tours. We just let them see the land and let them have the experience. And my most recent call has been to cows. So, <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So here I am in the middle of this call to raise cows that are on the livestock conservancy group. They're in the critical list. Mm -hmm. So they're Randall lineback cattle that come from Vermont with a family that had raised them and had really worked through the breeding and created a cow that is both dairy and meat and oxen. Hmm. I mean, how beautiful is that? Right. And when the last of the Randalls, Everett Randall died, 
the family mm-hmm. sold off the herd and it kind of was scattered wherever. And a woman from Tennessee got word of it. And about two years later, she went and bought, started buying cattle that were from the Randall Lineback family breed and gathering them together and starting the breed again. And now the last, I, the last I can find is there's about a thousand in the United States, which llamas, there's 20,000, just to give you sort of a reference point, like that's not very many animals in a breed to keep it going. And people are using them to breed to other dairy cattle for dairy, but not keeping the line pure. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are breeding them for meat, but they're not necessarily keeping the line pure. So there's a very small group of breeders that are really working to keep the breed pure. And that's my call is to keep this breed pure. So I have the first two on the farm. That's a long story. We have two on the farm. We have two more coming in September, all females to start a breeding program for us. That power of preservation, it's such a remarkable piece because I think about it in terms of as a storyteller, like how are we making sure we honor what original sources we have? How do we, you know, Mm -hmm. for me as a storyteller, it's always important to say, this is what I started with and then I made this big departure. And knowing that it's called for at different times when we need to say, this is as close to pure as we can as we can name it. This is what I've got from the scribe. This is what we've got from the original lineage and the DNA. And then when it's time to say, oh, let's call in a modern element. Let's say, what do we need right now to serve our purposes now and in the future? And making a conscious choice and communicating about it, saying, oh, right, well, this cow, we've we paired with this other one because it helps us in our quest to keep the farm going, to feed the people, to, you know, all of the above. There's just such a beauty in that sense of we can have both, but let's just know when and why we're calling and choosing to either preserve or to innovate. Exactly. Exactly. And preservation, that's a really good point about storytelling because storytelling is preserving the lineage of the story and getting it passed down. Very similar to what I'm doing with these cattle, which is to continue to breed so that it stays alive and gets passed down. Right, right. So let's go a little more into your story. I know that it, you know it's a book worth at least, but you know, thinking of you going up to that hill in North Carolina, and you know, I'd love to read to tell a little more to our listeners a little more about living in Appalachia and knowing that there are these connections between the Celtic world and with Appalachia. So there was more amazing synchronicities as I found this story and was was thinking of you. But you really moved up there. It was you and your son really kind of took the space originally, just the, you, a woman, raising a little boy and alpacas, and then that growth in the way that you called people to you and animals to you, and the people also started to find you, just as the animals have started to find you. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's been quite a story. And I, the beginning of it is that I was in North Carolina, I was in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had just written and launched a book about a woman, a very beautiful woman named Annie, who worked for our family when I was growing up, and she and I were very close. And I was actually in Kentucky, launching the book, met somebody, fell in love, had a child, didn't get married and was taking care of Annie, continuing to launch the book. And when Annie died Mm. and it was like the God's God, the spirit said, you're free to go do whatever you want to do. And I, at that point I had met an alpaca at the Kentucky state fair and had this moment of everything disappeared. It was just me and the eye of this alpaca. It was Mm. pure magic. And said, inside, I said, that's what I want to do. And the more I thought about it, I kind of kept it as a secret. You know how we do with dreams? We have this aha dream. And so I held it like as a secret. I didn't say anything to anybody and kept looking to see on the outside if there was any support for me doing something like that. And I kept getting support about farms, about farming, about raising animals, about whatever. And then the next piece that fell into place was North Carolina. So after Annie died, we came to North Carolina. We stayed at a place that I had stayed at before to look for a place to stay for a a month to look for property. Mm 
-hmm. And literally we drove here myself and the two-year-old, actually he was one and a half when we looked, came that first month and a golden retriever. And I'm I'm driving, it's about a six hour trip, but I'm driving and I'm like, you are stark raving mad. You are a single mom. You are leaving whatever support system you had, which was everything I knew was the support system that I had to start over and do something you've never done in a place where you know nobody. Mm -hmm. This is insane. I mean, I just was like, was struck with the insanity of it. And I heard if it's the right thing to do, I'll find the piece of property I can't say no to. Right. And I found the property. And that was the completion of the call there. I am, here I am still 20, my son's 23 now. So 21 years later. Wow. Yeah. In the same place, doing the same thing, raising alpacas. Yes. And, and, and as the vision and a whole journey and a whole journey that ensued after that. So there's an episode I am so grateful to be able to pair with yours. I just actually did the interview this morning with an Irish woman named Laura Murphy, who comes and is telling us the story of Bowen, who is an Irish goddess, very much associated with the magic of cows and cattle and milk. And just the way these serendipities and synchronicities work out. But she speaks a lot about this idea of imbus ferocity, which means the inspiration that illuminates. And it just sounds as if that is exactly what you were held Mm -hmm. in was Mm -hmm. this whisper from the gods, this sense of absolute, the conspiring of your own spirit with the spirit of this is my path and what I meant to do, the imbus ferocity. And still am. Yes. And still am. Yes. I mean, here comes this new species. That we're bringing, first came a new farm, a neighboring farm Mm -hmm. that would have been sold to developers if we hadn't intervened. And four of us pulled together to intervene and buy 80 acres of land. And nobody wanted the buildings. And the buildings were a 1910 farmhouse, which is the farmhouse to the property I'm on right now, the original, like the the heart of the property that I'm on now. Mm -hmm two barns, two really old barns and a newer barn. And it had been kept in cattle and not kept very well. Right. So in comes this whole new journey of restoring farmland and -hmm. preserving farmland. And there's a barn. I don't know how old the barn is. It could be 1910. It could be 1915. I may have been built before the house. We don't have any way of knowing and we planted blackberry bushes and blueberry bushes this summer, mm-hmm. kind of late. And it was like, I'm not going to let the time go by. The, the plants were there when I went to the, the nursery and they were on sale. You know, it's like the whole thing. And I was like, you know, it's never too late. So we planted these plants and I looked up at the barn and I could feel the barn just like shift and come back to life that there was somebody growing a garden, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't think about the land and what the land provides for all of us, for the cows to eat, for us to eat, for us to live on, but it is a very symbiotic relationship. Right. And so by planting 10 blueberry bushes and 10 blackberry bushes, the barn just like, like stood taller and lit up and then we unloaded the cows. I was like, I was so excited for the barn when we unloaded the cows. Like, yes, cows. Like, I'm bringing you cows and they're special cows and we're going to take care of the land and you're going to have a purpose again. And yeah, whatever that, I don't know, whatever it is. Well, that's your magic. It's powerful. Yes. It's powerful. And it's so hard to describe to most people because they're like, okay. <laughs> She talks to barns, she talks right. to plants, she talks to clouds, she talks to. <laughs> but I feel like having been on your farm, that's the magic of what you do. You don't, yes, you have amazing tour guides and they tell great stories. You're just saying, come and be here and trusting mm-hmm. them and their own, whatever's asleep inside of them to mm-hmm. just say, all oh, right, like I got to pet a goat this morning. I got to 
look out just the, the vista from from your land looking out at the mm-hmm, mountains mm-hmm. in and of itself granted you're in a space of mountains people would have to be wearing blinders not to have seen the mountains before they get to you but right. just standing on that beautiful deck you have looking out and that moment of those great wild expanses and then this such this well held and cultivated vision and pieces of property and animals, that juxtaposition is, I think, the essence of being human when we can slow down and realize, like, here's Mm -hmm. all that's possible and all that's wild. Here's the land itself. And that idea, as you said, of giving the barn purpose, giving all of these animals purpose, just even as just ambassadors of the more than human Mm -hmm. world. And I was so struck with that of like their job is to, you know, the alpacas grow their hair and do their amazing things. But so many of those animals were there just to invite us into relationship with them. And Mm -hmm. that's what my family really took away from that was like, oh, because what were the other cows you've you've had for a while? They were remarkable. So we have zebus. We have zebus. Right. Yeah. A couple of zebus, which are the Brahma, because most people won't know what that is. They're from the Brahma line of cattle. Mm-hmm. And they are miniature compared to real Brahmas, which, you know, you see in India and places right. like that. Right. Those kind of came to us similarly. And it just was sort of something that happened. It was something I'd seen and right. thought those are really cool. And, and as it happens, there's so many stories around animals to me, you know, in terms of how they get to the farm. And one of the female named Zara had had a baby and it was the calf was maybe five weeks old. Mm. I think it was younger, but I don't, I've never birthed Zebu to know size and those kinds of things, but we'd had an ice storm and it was frozen in the weather. Mm. Another thing that comes up in your story is about the weather, mm. you know, and being able to talk to the clouds and, and having that connection with weather. Anyway, so yeah. the, the calf was frozen. The mom was a little bit frozen and the farmer brought the calf in, slept with it in his bed. Oh to warm it up and bottle fed it mm-hmm. and called me the next day and said, I can get him through the next few days, but I can't get him through the winter. Cause it was our, it was November and we had winter coming Wow! and he didn't have an interior barn uh-huh. and take him on. And of course, you know, that was an easy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then it was a purchase of the two cows at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> the two zebus at the end of it, because mm-hmm. I, once I had done it, I couldn't give them back. They were mine, like right. energetically, they were mine. Yes. So that's how it started. That was the first cows to come. Although we raised cows before, but we raised them for meat, and it was a mm-hmm. very different relationship. Right. So, right. Yeah. I do appreciate that. It gives me some context for Mona sharing tea with her cow because that was my own invention. But perhaps that if, if farmers are calling cows into their beds, then I think Mona could have shared a cup of tea with her cow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my favorite thing, people ask me what my favorite thing is to do with the animals and that's to have coffee with them. Right. Yes. Those are often go out with a cup of coffee and stand and watch and yeah. drink my coffee yeah. and have coffee with the alpacas or the yeah. horses. You know, when we've lost an animal and there's an animal left behind that is particularly attached in some way, either a daughter or a companion in the field, I will go and have coffee with them afterwards, just as a connection to make sure they're good and to see if they need what they need energetically. Right. And there isn't any ritual to it other than me with a cup of coffee and them. That's it. And yet... I've heard your stories of doing this and they always just in the best possible way reek of ritual because it's that the truest rituals are those which are what flows so naturally from us and say, I was called and bringing a sacred cup is in and of itself Mm -hmm. one of the most powerful acts. So what strikes me as as interesting, because I just to return for a moment to that concept of preservation and then how it's in conversation with utility and knowing that you know farms are around in this area the farms that we could go to and visit are mostly preserve preservation spaces where you know animal sanctuaries and rescue spaces right. which has right. its own specific story and all you know it's mm-hmm. lost in talking mm-hmm. a lot about veganism and and why that's an option that people they suggest would take 
And knowing your farm it blends things in a different way and your mission is inspired by something different. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a very different point of view of that. And I, having been around animals that I've been around and trees, because trees are the same way, right? Apple trees produce apples and they don't bemoan the fact that they produce apples and they don't bemoan the fact that we eat the apples. That's their their role, right? Is to produce apples. They gather nutrients, they produce apples, the animals come and eat them. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, we're an animal, mm -hmm. the same as a cow. Yeah. And I really don't have not ever felt now. I'm not saying that this isn't possible. And I know, you know, for years I was vegetarian, so I don't have any, any concern there, but I don't think that animals bemoan the fact that they're eaten or that they're ridden or that they're sheared or that they're, or that they're kept as a pet, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that they, in, in many ways, and at a farm like mine, for sure, give themselves to the purpose of the farm. I mean, our farm has its own unique organism purpose, which is that everybody has a role and everybody has a job. The dogs greet people, the chickens are there to give eggs and the goats are there. We have Angora goats that we shear. So we shear them. We shear their fiber twice a year mm -hmm. and we use that for yarn. We use it for all sorts of products. Lots of felters buy it from us. Hmm. And there's a woman that makes knitted fairies hmm. and she uses it for fairy hair. So there's, there's purposes that come from the products that we're pulling from the animals. Right. And I just have yet, and maybe it's because of the way we treat our animals. We're not a huge production farm and that might be a little bit different. I don't know, but I just don't have a sense that anybody with pure purpose and pure purity has a problem with what the product is. Right. And I think we get that sometimes get that wrong. We put an overlay of what our understanding is and we say, well, the cow, you know, doesn't want to give its life or, I mean, even in the story of Mona, I mean, as you were telling the story of Mona and then you did the retell, you know, the re the change of the ending, it's like, well, so Mona wouldn't begrudge the fact that these people came and got her right and killed her and the cow nor would the calf like this because of the sacred purity everything's game yeah and there's no there's no you shouldn't do that we're not at the level of should and right and wrong we're at a much deeper spiritual level and it becomes what we call sacrifice which you know, we, we talk about sacrificial cows or sacrificial animals, and we, we even put an overlay on that, but the true meaning of raising animals is I sacrifice my life and energy for these animals as they do for me. And it's a mutuality. So there's a purity there mm -hmm. and there's no guilt or should or shame or right. And I've, been around and assisted with the death of so many animals. In mm -hmm. fact, jokingly, somebody referred to me as a death, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've been around for that transition and there is no stickiness. It just is alpacas just float away. Mm -hmm. They just, they just go, they yeah. go before they're gone. Right. Yeah. Horses have their own way and they do have attachments to humans and that does make it stickier, mm -hmm. but like their spirits are so much freer than we project our spirits to be. I so appreciate this reframe on things because as I was writing the story, I'm thinking, I've told Lee, I want to tell this story about a sacred woman and a sacred cow, and then they're going to die. And I was like, oh, I can't invite a friend onto my podcast for to, to watch the death of the creatures that she inspired me to tell. But I love that like it would have been okay if the story had ended there. Yeah. That is where so many of the stories end. So that question of when we feel that we want to 
reclaim, to empower a tale. In many ways, that's the stickiness of our modern minds that say, well, death is not really okay. We should make sure that everyone survives to just get somewhere closer to a happy ending. And so as a storyteller, wow, I'm really sitting with that sense of saying, well, we could have left it there. And that would have been its own different tale. I'm happy with the story that I told, but why did I really need to tell it? Was it just because I needed a heroine? Or was it because I just wasn't okay with the bad guys winning, quote unquote? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you offer such an interesting frame around that of saying, well, no, that still, that still is a narrative that could stand and offer us its own meaning and resonance. It's part of life. We just went through two deaths on the farm. One was an alpaca mm-hmm. and she was our alpha alpaca. Mm-hmm. I mean, just this uh, powerful, so powerful. She was just, I, I mean, this. I could tell story after story about this alpaca. There was one time she was sort of the head of the herd. And there was one time that Sune, one of our alpacas, a white alpaca was at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing outside the orchard and Chili, this alpaca that I'm talking about, who was the alpha is in the field with the other alpacas and she's grazing and she's doing whatever. And I'm standing there, I'm talking on the phone and I'm watching the alpacas, which is, I do a lot and just watch the alpacas and the phone doesn't ring, but a phone call comes through mm-hmm. and it's the hospital calling to give me an update on Sunik. And so I switch over to the phone call with the hospital without the phone ringing without me changing anything other than maybe looking at the phone to change over. And I continue talking. I haven't done anything different. I haven't done anything obviously different. And Chili looks up and she lock up, locks eyes on me. And she continues to lock eyes on me until the phone call is over. And then she looks away like nothing ever happened. <gasps> now that's the connectedness that this animal has. I don't get that with every, not every alpaca has that with whatever, but she was the out of the herd and Sunig was in the hospital. And I felt like that every word the vet talked to me about from the hospital and that phone call went straight to, to, to Chile and she understood. Wow. Yeah. And then I talked to the animals. So I'll say, <laughs> I'm always walking around saying, so I talked to the hospital and the hospital said, <laughs> right. and today we're gonna, and tomorrow we're gonna, and like, I, I talked to them like they're people, right? Mm-hmm. Because to me, they really, they're real right. and they're there and they understand whether they do or not. They understand my words. I also mm-hmm. talked to the dog that's deaf, but whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> he gets it. I don't know. <laughs> Just like, yammer, yammer, yammer on in this dog. And I'm like, oh, that's right. He's deaf. He can't hear me, <laughs> but maybe he gets the energy. So she was dying. So she's just passed. Mm-hmm. Chili has. And she was not a touchy, feely person, alpaca. Mm-hmm. She did not like people to touch and feel her. Alpacas naturally do not groom each other like horses do. Mm-hmm. So touch is not a normal thing for them. Mm-hmm. So we have to desensitize them to that. And that's not a normal thing. And that's a lot of the reason that we respect our herd and don't intervene often if we can help it. So it was clear to me and to Chile and to some of the people on the farm that what Chile wanted was to die with her herd. Hmm. And when I looked around, she was not doing well. And I was standing there and I could, I knew that was the end. And I was Hmm. like, okay, so what does my role need to be? And I looked at her and I said, Chile, I will follow your wishes, whatever they are. And she wanted to be left to die with her herd. Hmm. And so this process takes place for two weeks where she's going downhill, downhill, never to the point that she was laying down to the last day. And, you know, some days she was better. Some days she was worse. We were doing things to keep her comfortable, but we, we were doing as little intervention as possible. And I looked around the first day and I looked and here is Basil, the llama, who's the llama we've had the longest. And we have lots of different fields. So she could be in a field with lots of different animals, right? So here's July Moon, who's her daughter. Mm-hmm. Here is Sunig, who was the one that she connected to me on the phone with. 
Mm-hmm. So Tunic's been around for forever and Mojo who had been around for forever. Mm. And I'm like, she's got everything she needs. Right. And she did not need me to do anything other than to check yeah. on her and make sure she was good. Yeah. And what I witnessed from the team though, was, was very uncomfortable mm-hmm. to allow somebody to just die, to allow an animal to die. Yeah. Took two weeks and I would get a call something's going on. We need to call the vet. And I was like, okay, so you're saying that you're uncomfortable with what's happening with Chile. Right. And you want me to call a vet to end it because of your discomfort. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. And then there would be this like, oh yeah. And I said, you know, is humans, we don't get the option to call the vet and end it. Mm -hmm. We write it out. Mm -hmm. And we often do, we often do call the vet and end it with an animal. If we know that's where it's headed and they're in pain and they're uncomfortable, but Chile was never in pain or uncomfortable. Right. So we let it ride out. Right. And that's the biggest gift I could give to Chile. Whereas with another animal like July moon, her daughter, who's very much close to humans, Mm -hmm. probably the thing that she would want would be that I hold her and call the vet Mm -hmm. and I'd be holding her while she died. Mm. Right. Right. That vision of Chile with her circle of elders, it's like being with her other Kalia Mm -hmm. is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's so Mm -hmm. beautiful. I think it's so important that we realize that, that we don't need to be afraid of death. It's just another phase of life. It's so important as parents, you and I have talked before about that What's happening on a day when an animal is on her way out? What happens when it's full of tour groups and you have, you know, is it time to have a conversation with families who are looking for a way to have a nice afternoon out? And yet what better space and place to have a conversation than on a working farm that's full of life and growth and of course is full of death. It's not an easy one. It's one that we're not acculturated to be ready to have, mm-hmm. but it is absolutely essential. And admittedly, in being there with my eight-year-old and my 12-year-old, I was very glad to see that all the animals were happy and thriving and we could just, you know, <laughs> snuggle with the elder dogs and, and you know, pet some goats and meet some cows and watch the alpacas from afar. And then everybody seemed to be glowing with health. But that's not always the case. And you hold that Mm -hmm. sacred space Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. all the things in such a brilliant way. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And we we try not to bring it into the families. It's like conversations they might not want to have on vacation. (laughs) Right. At my house, it's just that we go away on those vacations and we come home and a fish has died. So we just end up having it at home. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember when my son was really little and he found this mouse and he brought it in and I was just like, oh, 12 hours. I don't know how long this mouse had to live right when he found it and brought it in. And, you know, right. the next day and he prepared a place to bury it. And he, we had a funeral procession out the front door yeah. and around the front yard to the side of the house and buried. And there were flowers around the grave. And, mm-hmm. you know, we I don't know that we come in being so afraid of it. Right. Right. I have to have a fish funeral this afternoon, actually. So I think I'm going to walk into this with a lot more grace than I would have yesterday after coming in from a long car ride from Vermont. We came home to find that Aztec Aru, the bed of fish, had expired. So I covered the tank with a towel and I said, we're not going to do this right now. I didn't know at the time that I needed to talk to Lee, the sacred animal death doula in order to be prepared to lay Aztec Aru to his eternal rest in the rocky soil of Hudson Valley. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll leave you with a tip. It's easier to bury the fish without the bowl. Oh, absolutely. We are going to be replacing him with a couple of fine strapping goldfish because I feel as if my delicacy of better grandmotherhood has passed and now we're ready for some good old carp that is just going to survive the next. (laughs) 
Well, Lee, thank you so much for making this story come alive in such a beautiful way. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about how to find you and your work and to experience all the magic that you create in the world? So the best place to find me (laughs) is on the farm. And our website is applehillfarmnc.com. And almost everything, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is done with Apple Hill Farm NC. So you can find us there and get sort of the day-by-day updates. But the website is the main way to get information into the farm. Lee, thank you so much for having been here with me for Mona and her cow and to tell us the story of you and your amazing community on a hill full of so many animals, so much life, and so much death, because that is the essence of what it is to be here on this planet. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram, at NotWorkPodcast, and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.